Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Yeah, so I was picking up uh, the vibe there from some of the prayer requests that people noticed that we had a midterm election. Cost over $9 billion. Imagine. Do you think it'll result in making anything better? I mean, the longest serving active senators, Patrick Leahy, Republican, 47 years. Actually, he's Democrat. Mitch McConnell, Republican, 37 years. Uh, representatives in the House, Hal Rogers, Republican, 41 years. Chris Smith, Republican, 41 years. Steady Hoyer, we know him, 40 years, right? Longest standing active members of Congress still in there. Chuck Grassi, Republican, 47 years. Ed Markey, Democrat, 45 years. Ron Wyden, Democrat, 41 years. Chuck Schumer, Democrat, 41 years. Pelosi's been in there for 35 years. And President Joseph Biden has been in D.C. for 50 years. <laughs> the Biden presidential campaign from 2020 was Build Back Better. For all the time that these folks have been there, if they were going to make anything better, shouldn't they got it done by now? Furthermore, if you've been there 30, 40, 50 years, isn't what we have what you have built? I mean, 50 years ago, the national debt was $458 billion. Today, it's $31 trillion. So what these people have built for us over the last 50 years is $30 trillion, $500 billion worth of debt. So when they say stuff like build back better, as far as I can tell, what they're building is debt. And chances are we're just going to double down and keep building more debt. And they tell us that's better. $31 trillion is better than the $27 trillion we had in 2020? Guess it is. We should believe that. Since I've come here to, uh, to the U.S., moved down here 15 years ago, 2007, we had $9 trillion debt, and today we have $31 trillion. And in the 15, of those 15 years, Joe Biden was the vice president of the president for 10 of them, so at least $20 trillion worth of debt has been built through that leadership. Needless to say, I'm really looking forward to seeing how much more is going to be built in the next two years, aren't you? When someone tells you they're going to make something better, you better ask their definition of better. When Eliana and I first got married, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. The previous tenants had smoked in it, so it had a nice, lingering, smoky ambiance in there. The bathroom had a tub with no shower, and the kitchen was really just uh, a corner with some cabinets on the wall, and the living room and kitchen was just all one little room. Within weeks of getting married, we found out that we were expecting. Actually, Eliana's pregnant, not me, but she was having a baby. And okay, so this one-bedroom stinky apartment wasn't going to cut it, so Eliana started praying for something better. Well, we found a two-bedroom apartment with a one bath that had a shower and a nice balcony view, all new carpets and all new paint, so no smells, and it costs less money, ooh, that sounds better, right? After a year of being there, our landlord said the rent is going to go up, but the church that we were serving it, 
they had a house that became available, and that house had three bedrooms, two baths, lots of storage in the basement, and it was right next to the church, so we didn't have to drive, and the rent was going to be less. Ooh, that sounds better. A year after living there, the deacons were so kind, and they said, hey, we want to get you to pay the oil bill uh, at that place. And the oil, first of all, this place had drafty windows and a big crack in the basement. And in Canada, that was impossible place to heat, and the oil was uh, astronomically expensive. And so we were tired of renting at that point anyways, and we were praying that we could find a place that we could buy. So we found this interesting old home in downtown. It had three levels. And each level was set up to be its own one-bedroom apartment, one-bedroom rental. So uh, we had three baths in that house. And on the top level, we took that for our bedrooms. We put the kids in the bedroom. And then Eliana and I took the living room for our bedroom. And then the middle level, we had the living room and we had the kitchen we used as a family. And then there was a spare bedroom that was like the playroom and a guest room. And then the basement, I rented it out to my cousin and for a couple hundred bucks a month. And we bought that house for $49,000. Can you imagine? Imagine. So with the rental income we were now owning, had more space, and we were paying less. Ooh, that sounds better. For us, better meant more usable space for less money. Doesn't that sound better? does to me. I'm curious why lots of people think paying more and getting less is better. Well, you know, what do I know? I'm not a politician. Things are very complicated in D.C. They have different meanings for words, like better. <laughs> Today we're going to learn about a better covenant that Jesus is offering, so naturally we want to know the details of what exactly is better about this. So let's see if we can learn how the new covenant is going to be better. As we continue on in our study, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to read verse 6 down to the end of the chapter. Here's what the author said, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was enacted on better promises. Four. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, God says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and they shall, I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is already to disappear. We're talking about covenants for the promises that God has made with the nation of Israel. Now, the main one that is being changed is not the Abrahamic covenant, 
the promises of land, seed, and blessing. That one's unconditional. We remember God swore an oath that he would keep that one. It's not the Davidic covenant, the promise of a coming Messiah who will reign over a righteous kingdom forever. That one is also unconditional, meaning that man doesn't have to do anything to uphold his end of the bargain for that to happen. God said, I'm going to do this regardless. And the Davidic covenant is affirmed by the authors of the New Testament. So which covenant is going to be replaced? What's it called? The, Mo the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is the covenant, it's what we call a conditional covenant that God made with the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. We see all the details of it in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 to 24. The formula of the conditional covenant basically goes like this. I'm the Lord your God. You will worship me and serve no other gods. If you obey my laws and obey my commandments, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you tremendously. You will prosper abundantly. I will drive all sickness and disease and calamity far from you, and I will make you undefeatable to your enemies. And the people all agreed to that covenant, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And this covenant would serve to set the nation of Israel apart from the other nations of the world as God's chosen people. And if Israel is obedient, then God will bless them. But here's the condition. If they're disobedient, then God would punish them. And the, and a, and the covenant continues. If you disobey me, I will curse you with famine and plague, and your enemies will come and they will defeat you. So the blessings and the curses that are associated with this conditional covenant, they're all found in the books of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Mosaic covenant is especially significant because in it, God promised to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be God's light in a dark world around them. They were to be separate and they were to be a called out nation so that everyone around them would see that they worship Yahweh, this amazing covenant keeping God. And because God was going to bless them with so much, all these other nations of the world would look at Israel and go, wow, Israel's God's the greatest. Look at all that he's doing for them. Our gods suck. Let's learn about Israel's God. That was always the plan. There's always the plan for God to reach the nations of the world through the blessing of Israel. And it was working really well all through King Solomon. Remember King Solomon? He was the wisest and the richest, and everybody would come see him and see his kingdom. We talk about being a mission-oriented church, that we are committed to supporting and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. God has always been mission-oriented. In the Old Testament, he wanted to use Israel to showcase his greatness and his glory to the whole world. That's what the Old Covenant was. Well, that sounds like a good deal. But this New Covenant is said to be better. The Greek word for better is kriton. The author of Hebrews uses it 13 words in this book. He's very sold on the idea that Jesus and whatever he's doing is better. So that means, definition, 
more useful, more serviceable, more advantageous. Ooh, advantageous. I like the sound of that word. I want to know what the advantages are. Tell me about them. When you decide that you're going to buy a new or newer car, you will ask yourself, what are the advantages of purchasing this car versus what I'm currently driving? I need to compare it so that I will know, you know, is this going to be better than what I have? Because after all, what I have is already taxed, tagged, and Come on, guys. Tax, tagged, entitled, right? And that costs some money. And I already put the money into that one. So what are the advantages of going out and buying something new and having to do all that again? Well, for me personally, since I tend to drive my cars until they fall apart, the first advantage is this new one works. <laughs> all the automated features are working. Hey, look, the AC's blowing cold. Woohoo! Remember that. It's newer. It has less miles. Okay, but you know, we're going to spend a lot of money, so what else do we want? You know, let's shop around. Well, a leather interior would be nice, and a sunroof would be nice. Okay, let's put that in there. You know, well, you know, I'd like some, I'd like some towing capacity. I want some power. Uh -huh. You know, I want to get that and more power in it and more spacious. Our previous vehicle doesn't have any of that. So those are the advantages. But if you tried to sell me a car that didn't have any advantages, it, it's older than the one I'm currently driving, it has more miles, and most of the features are not working, and the tires are bald, and it's not going to pass inspection, why would I bother? So that's the author's first point. He states the obvious here. He says the first covenant, the one you're currently driving, has a lot of problems. It's Faulty, verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there'd be no occasion to buy another vehicle. There'd be no occasion to get a second covenant. Oh yeah, who says? Who, wh what, who's criticizing the old covenant? What's wrong with it? What's not working? Well, with the conditional Mosaic covenant, the people had to uphold their end of the bargain. The people in Deuteronomy swore that they would keep the laws... And guess what we learn as we study the rest of the Old Testament? From Deuteronomy on, we learn over and over and over again that the people forgot the laws, disobeyed the laws, ignored the laws, and then guess what happened? God would withhold his blessings and protection, and the people would be oppressed by the enemies, and then they would suffer. And God used foreign nations to punish Israel for their disobedience. And wow, did they excel at disobedience. Breaking his laws, worshiping other gods, being overcome by their greed and lust, living wicked, perverted lives, to the culmination of sacrificing their very children to false gods. Hmm, sounds familiar. I mean, we're about to become a sanctuary state for abortions. And everyone's going to come here to sacrifice their children. So we need to pray for CareNet, and we need to pray hard and support them, because they're going to be very busy. Israel would break their laws and worship other gods. And that cycle went on for a thousand years. And finally God said, okay, you, you people love your false gods so much, guess what? You're going to go into captivity, and you're going to go to the place where all these false gods originated. Where was that? Babylon. 
And Babylon conquered Israel, and they took them out of their land, and tore down their temple, and took them into captivity. They lost their independence, and now they're ruled over and oppressed by the kingdoms of this world. First Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and now in this time, in the book of Hebrews, who's ruling them? Rome is ruling them. Why? Because they couldn't keep the laws. They couldn't uphold their end of the bargain. What if someone was going to give you a magic car? I'm going to give you this car for free, and it never runs out of gas, and it never breaks down. This car will run forever. As long as you, here's what you have to do. Clean it every day. Take the trash out. Vacuum it out. If you keep it spotless, it's never going to break down. And it's never going to run out of gas. Well, since gas costs me three dollars to $4,000 a year and maintenance costs me $2,500 a year and the older it gets, that number just keeps going up and I'll never have to spend another twenty dollars to $30,000 again to buy another car. Whoa, what a bargain. Sign me up. Think I can do it? Come on. I know some of you, Kevin Davis could do this. He would keep that car spotless, right? But what about that day when you're getting back really late from vacation and it's dark and you're exhausted and the car's full of all your stuff and your McDonald's bags are on the floor and the kids have crapped it all up and, and it was a beach vacation, so there's sand all in the rug. Are you going to be able to clean it that day? What if it's Christmas Eve and you've been visiting the in-laws and you're coming back at two in the morning and, and it's freezing cold? Are you going to be able to get the shop back out on that day? Get her cleaned up? Yes! Yes, I will! It'll be hard, but it'll be worth it. Okay. Kevin, you managed. I know you did it. But, you know, now you're going to leave that car in your will to Garrett's. Garrett's been driving in this car his whole life. And to him, you know, it's kind of old hat. And he takes it for granted. He's never had to buy gas. He's never had to do car repairs. He's been told about these things. He's told how expensive a new car is, how you're going to have to take out a loan, and how compound interest is going to cost you so much. But you know, the neighbors, they always got a brand new car, and it's always so fancy. And, and, and Garrett imagines how cool it would be to have something like that. And, you know, he just he finds vacuuming it out, such a burden, and it's so annoying. And, you know, then sure enough, one night he comes home late, and he's exhausted, it's freezing cold, and is he going to get that shot back out? Ah, Garrett, let us down, buddy. Eventually, somebody's going to drop the ball someday, aren't they? Because... We can never be completely faithless, faithful all the time. We can never be perfect all the time, which was the point of it all along. The point of the law was to illustrate how the nation and the world could never be perfectly faithful. We have sinned. We all have sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. So what is the fault what is the problem of the Old Covenant? It's us. 
That's the problem. It's people, our inability to uphold our end of the bargain. The Mosaic law would reveal to the people their sinfulness and their need of a savior. And it is the Mosaic law that Christ himself said that he's come not to abolish, but to fulfill, to be the sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice that would be taking away the sins of the world. It was all foreshadowing of how Jesus was going to die and how he was going to be the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice. Therefore, the Mosaic law itself, with all of its detailed laws, could not save people. It's not that there was any problem with the law in of itself. The law was perfect, given by a holy God, but the law did not have power to give people new life. The law was only there to show people that they can't obey it perfectly. And this is why God always had a plan to replace the old covenant once it served its purpose and God had promised all the way back in Jeremiah. You remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 31. You remember uh, in Jeremiah, it was, it was the last straw for the nation. The prophet of Jeremiah gave them the final warning from the Lord. Repent or God is going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to destroy our temple. And we're all going to be over there in Babylon in captivity. And the people absolutely hated Jeremiah. And he, they hated his word from the Lord. But it all came true. But just because God had kicked them out of the land, and sent them into captivity, he had not forgotten his unconditional covenants he had made with Abraham, he had made with David, and God had a plan to deal with the old covenant and enact a new covenant. In verse number eight, for finding fault with them, he said, days are coming, says the Lord, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand and I led them out of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Here we see the faults of the old. They didn't continue in the covenant and I did not care about them. That sounds so wrong, doesn't it? God saying, I didn't care for them? Oh, that sounds callous. But don't take that to mean God emotionally became disinterested or God was heartless, take it very literally. God was caring and blessing his nation, but when they broke his law and they disobeyed him, he did what he said he would do. He removed his protection and permitted the curses and the calamities to affect them. But that motive wasn't out of hate and bitterness. No, the motive behind that, that chastening and that discipline was Love, as God says, every son that is loved is chastened. Just like you as moms and dads, you don't discipline your children because you hate them. You discipline them because you, you love them, right? So that sounds so wrong that God didn't care for them. It sounds callous, but don't take it that way. The, the motive was love. Like, you remember the story of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, he wants his inheritance and... The father gives him his inheritance and then he goes off and he just blows it all on riotous living, the scripture says, and he just squanders it all. And next thing you know, he's out of money and a famine comes and he's, he's down there in the pig pen and he's starving to death and he's just eating pig food. And, uh, and then, you know, the father never sent him money, right? The father never sent him money here, you know, go get yourself some food, you know, don't eat the pig food. As long as he was living in that state of disobedience, the father wasn't helping him, but the father didn't stop caring for him or stop loving him. What was the father always doing? Father was always looking. 
He was always watching. He was always wanting for the son to come home. And once the son came home, what did the father do? He blessed him, right? He restored him and he, he gave him all that he needed. So we call that tough love, wouldn't we? But God already has done the tough love through the old covenant. And now he wants to change the broken relationships. He wants to change this ongoing separation between us and him due to the sin. And he says, I'm going to transform their hearts and their minds. Verse 10, in the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after the day, those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I'm going to write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. They need to know and they need to believe that they are saved from sin and they're secure in their relationship with God. As Paul writes in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer, in supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is going to guard your what? Your heart and your, your mind. The promise here is Christ Jesus will guard our hearts in our mind. We're not strong enough to do that on our own, but greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Who's in me? The Holy Spirit. God now lives within us and he guards our hearts and our minds. In the new covenant, God is no longer residing in the temple. No, in the new covenant, God is residing in the hearts of the minds of his children. No more separation. He now lives within us. The apostle Paul wrote, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is now dwelling within us, who you receive from God. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That person, when they first put their faith in Jesus, they, they hear the information about Jesus, who he is, you know, like the song we sang here this morning, the, the, basically singing all of our beliefs, you know. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross. He rose again. I believe this message. If I confess my sins, that Jesus will forgive me and he'll make me a child of God. And then they hear that and they have this inner dialogue. They say, okay, yes, I, I, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take that step of faith. Dear, dear Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I'm going I'm to trust in you. I'm believing in you. And then once they do that, they will start telling us, they'll start saying stuff like, it all clicks. The lights just have come on. It's so clear now. I understand God. I understand his word. I need to learn a lot more. But when I hear it, I understand it. I know it's right. I know I'm hearing truth. It's like a light that's just shining on me. What are they trying to articulate? What, what happened that they're trying to find the words to describe? And often they're so very emotional and sensitive and, and they're no longer callous and they just have this desire to know God. What happened? It's the Holy Spirit has entered them 
and he's changing their heart, and he's changing their mind. Well, the Bible tells us that he enlightens us, and he teaches us, and he speaks to us with a still, small voice, and he's creating in that person a clean heart and a renewed mind, and now they know God in this deeper way, and they feel the love of God, that the joy of the Lord, the peace that passes all understanding. Paul, before he believed in Jesus, he knew the old covenants. He knew the law, and he was religiously devoted to the law, better than most, matter of fact. Paul was competing to be the best at knowing and keeping the law. And he told us about this in Philippians chapter 3. He said, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, meaning like the works of the, work, the, the, works of the law, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day. Hey, let's brag about that for a minute, huh? Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, <laughs> persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Never once didn't clean the car. I had it. He was arresting the new Jewish Christians who dared abandon the law. He was dragging them into courts, and they were even putting them to death. But Paul didn't know God. He knew the law. He didn't know God until on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Lord smacked him off his horse, knocked him to the ground and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. And then Paul went from knowing the law to knowing Jesus and then this is what he says about the difference of knowing the law versus knowing Jesus, continuing on in Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yea, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of suffering, being conformed unto death, that I may any means obtain the resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit had filled Paul. And from then on, all he wanted to do was know Jesus more and more and serve him and be like him. And yes, even sacrificed his life. He died for the gospel message. That's the power of the new covenants. I will put their laws in their minds and in their hearts. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not have to teach his fellow citizen. Everyone saying to his brother, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to, to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. From the least to the greatest people and get up here and proclaim with passionate sermons all this deep theology, all they know about God. Our missionaries can come in and tell about all the things they're doing for God. And within a few minutes, young Houston's going to get up here and he's going to say, I believe in Jesus. And that's why I'm getting baptized. And both know God. From the grace to the greatest to the leadest. Grace 
greatest to the least. Can't get my words out. Does not matter. You know God in your hearts. And God is at work in our children. And God is at work in our teens. And God is at work in our homes and our families. And God is speaking through us all. And then look at this amazing promise, verse 12. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. There's people in here who are beating themselves up over their sins, over their shame, over their embarrassments. And you just need to get a hold of these promises in God's Word. You might remember your sins and your shames. You might be embarrassed. You might not want to use your stories. You might not want to be transparent. But if you will open up and you'll just trust in God, you will see His mercy and His love and own this promise right here. As far as the east is from the west, He's removed your sins from you. You might remember them. He doesn't. He's washed them all away. Yes, you have cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We used to sing a song when I was growing up. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free and in my heart a song. Buried in the deepest sea. That was the bass part. That was cool. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God. My sins are G-O-N-E. They're gone. I will remember them no more, he says. That's the new covenant. The old never did that. So doesn't that sound better? Ooh, that sounds better. When he's, verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever has become obsolete and grown old is about to disappear. So since the old is obsolete, it's broke down, it's going to go away. It's going to disappear. Probably better to go with the new, right? It's the better option. Actually, since the old is going away and disappearing, it's not only the better option, it's now the, right? It's the only option. When you total your car, Rick, and they take it away to the trash heap, it's gone. you got to go and get something new. And that's what. The old has been totaled. It's been hauled away. It's in the scrap heap. And if you want to know God, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Jesus is Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this great gift, for this great new covenant that you've presented to us. We pray that each and every one in here would know this, would understand this, would receive and believe this precious gift that you've given. Thank you for all that you did to die on the cross, to rise again, to give us eternal life. May we put aside all of our, our failures and all of our sins, and may we trust in you. May we put our hope in you, and may we live our lives to, as Paul says, to, to count all things of loss, to receiving you and knowing you and serving you. We pray that you will just continue to do this work in our homes and in our hearts, renewing our minds, renewing our hearts, and we could see a great move of this, a revival in our land to faith in Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.